Welcome to the Beyond Boundaries podcast. Happy New Year. We are back. Yes, it was a long break. I'm really sorry. Uh, I am going to, at some point, do a breakdown episode of my story in 2019. It's been an interesting year, lots of change and transition. Due to that, I wasn't able to give my efforts to the Beyond Boundaries podcast, but today, an exciting day, it returns, and I'm actually really excited about this. I got some really good episodes that are already banked, and I got some interviews that I have scheduled that I'm really looking forward to, and lots of great stuff ahead. Uh, Something new uh, this year is that I'm starting a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash beyond boundaries podcast. This is just a way for me to offset some of the expenses I incur for doing this podcast. I've had to purchase some new equipment to keep this going. Uh, Anything you can do to help would be amazing and awesome. And if you can't help, I totally get it. Uh, You can like share, subscribe, rate the podcast. Those are other free ways that you can help that are easy to do and uh, really mean a lot. Uh, I'm so looking forward to this podcast uh, for 2020 and just all the things ahead that we're going to do with Beyond Boundaries. Uh, I got a chance to sit down with my friend, Tommy Airy. He's an awesome dude, like legit. He's, he's the real deal. Uh, it isn't uh, really an interview. It's more of a conversation. Tommy and I had connected back in 2018 when he spoke at the church I was leading uh, while I was on vacation, and he came back in 2019 and spoke again for us, and this time I was actually around and able to connect with him personally, and we were just gonna go get coffee and chat and get to know each other's stories a little deeper than we already had, and I thought to myself, hey, I'm pretty sure there's gonna be some interesting stuff that we talk about, some, some good kind of connection that we have, and maybe some of the conversation would be good for the Beyond Boundaries podcast. So I said, I'm gonna bring my recording stuff and we'll maybe do it that way. And so we weave in and out of a bunch of topics. I share some of my story, he shares some of his story, and we go down a few rabbit trails, but ultimately, I think it's a great conversation. I think you're really gonna enjoy it. Hopefully you enjoy this story, this conversation with Tommy Airy. So Tom, how you doing? Good, it's great to be back. Yeah. Yeah, one year later. Yeah, one year later in PA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were with us a year ago. Um, so why don't we just jump in by you telling people who you are, and then we're just gonna have a catch-up conversation, because we were just gonna get coffee, but instead we decided, why don't we like record this mm-hmm. conversation since we huh. uh, you know, get a chance to just connect in this way, and then, um, and then just see where it goes, and maybe it'll be something I put on the podcast. We'll see. But uh, why don't you introduce people to who you are if they've never huh. met Tom Yeri. Who are you? What are you about? If we're gonna have a deep conversation, we might as well record it. Yeah, you know exactly. Okay. Seriously, <laughs> I, well, I feel like, so, and I said this to you. I, so many people, I think, want to be part of these conversations, but yeah. maybe they don't feel like there's people yeah. in their life that they can have these conversations with. And yeah. so, I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of the podcasts I've listened to have kind of been these opportunities to not feel alone and mm. to feel like I'm like, okay, I, I, I'm not in the room with those people, but I kind of feel like a yeah. a oneness with them in the sense that. I'm having some of those same thoughts in my head that I'm hearing you affirm that they're not crazy. Does that make sense? Or yeah. Yeah. I've seen those same things that you've seen yeah. and they've kind of made my stomach turn too. Or yeah. like, you know, and, and like, I think sometimes having, especially through the deconstruction process of my personal theology, having other people mm. say it's okay or other people that I respect or trust or just consider like somebody that I would listen to and take guidance from. Uh, give me permission to consider a different possibility that hasn't always been a possibility that my community has supported. Does that make sense? But, 
but that um, from a distance I'm able to hear. So who knows? Maybe some of what we talk about today will be encouraging to somebody. Yeah. I, I can only hope so. so. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, tell people who you are. Yeah, so I'm uh, a Southern California native. Um, I, I grew up in uh, Orange County, which is about an hour south of L.A. in the suburbs. And um, I, uh, after I went to the University of Kansas, uh, go Jayhawks, I moved back to um, Orange County and I was a high school teacher uh, at a large public high school for 18 years. So I, I actually taught at the, the high school that I uh, attended um, way, way back in the day. And uh, so I taught social sciences, um, economics, government, AP world history. I was the athletic director for about four years. Um, I coached basketball and cross country. And at the same time, uh, was um, the advisor for Fellowship of Christian Athletes and uh, was, uh, became an associate pastor at an evangelical church plant of Saddleback Church, a uh, huge megachurch out there. And, um, and so grew up in, in, in what I would call white evangelicalism. Mm. Um, uh, I started going to a, a private Christian school um, when I was 10 years old, and, and I loved it. Um, I, I fell in love with the Bible stories um, and, uh, and, and, and a faith in Jesus. And um, it was, a, it was a, to put it on a map, uh, a school where um, every morning after our Bible readings, the teacher would say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And, um, and it was just a clear-cut, absolute truth reading of the Bible. And uh, there was uh, probably the most popular male teacher, young male teacher on campus would pass us in the hallways and say, um, say to us every time, uh, without a doubt, um, good morning, young Republicans. So, really? it, so, it, uh, so it connected this kind of republicanism <laughs> to, um, oh, to evangelical man. Christianity. And, um, and those, were, those were the Reagan years, right? I mean, yeah. this, is, this was the, the, the beginning of this kind of powerful move for white evangelicalism uh, and, and what we see today. Um, and, and then in, in my late 20s, um, as I was teaching, as I was traveling a lot, um, as I was getting to know students uh, from diverse backgrounds, uh, uh, racially and ethnically, but also sexual orientation-wise, um, I mean, these issues became human and real for me. Yeah. And so undocumented students were coming out to me as undocumented. Mm. Uh, gay and lesbian and trans students were coming out to me uh, as queer and questioning and, um, you know, still in the closet uh, with uh, their parents uh, and friends from church and stuff like that. So to me, all of, um, all of my categories were starting to get rearranged and um, yeah. it started to... Uh, I started to ask questions, and those usually those questions were not being um, received very well in, in church circles. Yeah. If you know what I'm saying, I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> I know a little bit of what you're saying. So, and then you you were I don't know if you had said you were in Detroit for a while working. Share a little bit about your work in Detroit and what that was. Yeah. So um, fast forward all the way to to 2013 after. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I got married in 2005, and we uh, went to Fuller Seminary together for, uh, for about three years and um, uh, got a degree there and started some house churches uh, in, in Orange County. 
um, ended up meeting uh, a guy by the name of Ched Myers, who um, who is a biblical scholar and activist and uh, wrote a incredible book, incredible commentary on Mark's gospel called Binding the Strongman, mm. and found out that he lived 100 miles north of us, and he was tremendously uh, hospitable and invited us to uh, come and visit, and we kept going up there on weekends and hanging out with he and his wife partner Elaine. And um, in 2013, they sent us on a 75-day road trip all over North America um, wow. to just to just witness alternative uh, expressions of Christian faith, what we would call radical discipleship, hmm. that that uh, are connecting um, faith uh, centered in Jesus with social analysis and oppression and anti-oppression work um, all over the United States. So um, as, a, as a high school teacher, I had the summer off and um, our lease was up in June for the little apartment that we were renting. And so we threw all of our stuff in storage and, and hit the road and met some incredible people. Um, wow. And on that road trip in 2013, we, it, it was a discernment trip for us because we knew and we, we had continued to have uh, this placed on our hearts that um, we, we knew like for our discipleship that we needed to move out of the suburbs and apprentice ourselves to some people who are taking cues from the margins and have been doing that for decades. So when we rolled through Detroit for 48 hours and um, in 2013, we just, we fell in love with um, the people and uh, the place and were blown away by the work that they were doing and the stories that they were telling. And so we made a decision um, the next summer to to move to Detroit. So in 2014, I retired from teaching and um, uh, we raised some support to, to move for a year. And, um, and we ended up staying for about four and a half years mm. uh, and lived in the city and um, and, and worked with uh, an intentional community there, but also uh, an Episcopal church there, and uh, and kind of threw in with um, the organizing work around water shutoffs in, yeah. this, in the city of Detroit. They're shutting people's water off who are uh, two months behind on their bills, and um, and it's all poor black folks. Mm. And so it's uh, uh, what we learned really quick was that water shutoffs and tax foreclosures were all part of the gentrification scheme in the city of Detroit. Oh, wow. So it, it, it's a clearing out method, and um, and, it, and it creates all this open space for white folks to move in and um, set up shop. Sure. So um, where where do you live now? You moved you you've moved from Detroit now. So share with people where you live now and what you're doing there and what yeah, you're so, passionate about. So believe it or not, we have uh, moved to Bend, Oregon, uh, Central Oregon, uh, a place so different than Detroit. Um, it's, it's hard to even imagine. Uh, but we, we moved to Bend. Uh, Lindsay's brother uh, has been living in Bend. Okay. Um, Greg and, and, and his wife, Casey, and our, and our nephew, Milo, have uh, been living there for about five years. And, uh, and that was something that was really on our hearts. After being uh, in Michigan and on the road a lot for more than four years, we, we realized um, uh, that we wanted to be close to family, uh, A, and, uh, and that has been great the last six months. Mm -hmm. But the other part of it is, is that we really continued to feel called to uh, a white majority space. Um, and in 2015, we were 
with a group of organizers and uh, and one of uh, the black women, a mentor um, to to us, um, asked white people in the room, uh, white organizers. She she said, you know, since the civil rights movement, we've been asking you to move um, to the suburbs and go to the suburbs because we can't, and mm. um, and and we need voices in that wilderness. And we need bridge builders in that space to connect them, uh, white folks, um, to this movement. Um, yeah. And uh, and that was a a challenge for us. For at, sure. At, at that time, we did we were not ready to move back to <laughs> what we came from, and uh, and we weren't ready for that. Um, but I think more and more on our hearts, we feel like that 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 is part of our vocation. Yeah. These are these are the people we love. These are the people we know. And, and we see that um, these are folks that need bridge builders. They need um, help connecting the dots with, like, like how is it that we can uh, change the world? How, how can we transform the world? How can we um, create um, liberation and healing for, for, for the globe? Um, and, um, and these are people with a lot of power and privilege uh, and, and that can uh, do that, so... Yeah, for sure. I think, I think that's the tension, right? Like using your influence in the right space, but then trying to figure out like, do I have an obligation to be with those who are maybe in a difficult circumstance or is my best power and privilege being not in living in that space maybe, but influencing the space over here. Like, and obviously I think there's a value in both, but, um, yeah. But I think that's a that's a good word when you think about um, the realities of those spaces often not having voices that are pushing back against some of the narratives that exist in those spaces. So that's yeah. awesome. How do you like Oregon? Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is beautiful. Um, the rivers and the lakes and the mountains and um, in Bend, Oregon, it's the high desert. Mm-hmm. It's a really unique um climate uh, it's it's sunny 300 days a year and um but it has seasons and uh it's it's really one of the most beautiful places we've ever been so yeah yeah very good well i don't really have an agenda or questions or anything we're just catching up so uh, i wanted to make sure anybody listening like got a you know brief intro to who you are oh and you have a book of course that we should plug so descending like a dove yeah, on, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Came out with it about a year ago. Yeah. Descending like a dove. Anytime uh, writing a book, man, that's that's legit. How long did that take you to do? Yeah, it took about two years to write. Was um, it like a grueling grinding process, or was it like at times? Fun? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, peaks and valleys, um, and and a, and an experience that I, I'll be, you know, forever grateful for um, to be able to really process. Yeah. Um, the evangelicalism that I that I grew up with. Uh, the subtitle is "Adventures in Decolonizing Evangelical Christianity," and it's and so the first third of the book is is my story uh, mm-hmm. of of being in white evangelicalism and my mindset and what I was trained in, and then the the kind of cognitive dissonance that 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 slowly kind of took me over. Uh, the kind of tension that I lived in um, of of these different beliefs. That, that I was trained up in that, that no longer were compelling or relevant yeah. to me. Um, but, I, but I couldn't leave Jesus behind. And as I read theologians 
like James Cone and and Chad Myers and a whole lot of others uh, realized that, that the Jesus that was handed to me um, was a Jesus that's been hijacked. It's a mm. it's it's a Jesus that's kind of made for um, for folks in power, and wow. it's a Jesus that's made to, to, to keep the status quo going for yeah. uh, for a few people, while yeah. the, while the while the rest of humanity is suffering. Um, yeah, so. So that book, I would assume even just the subtitle of that book with it being uh, Columbus Day today, <laughs> decolonizing. Um, uh, we're doing a conversation tonight um, about that. I think that'll be, it'll be interesting to see who shows up for, yeah. uh, I love the title, Rising Above Christopher Columbus Christianity. <laughs> like, I just love that because it's like, okay, we can yeah. go, we can go, be- we could do better than this. Like, <laughs> I don't have to like, I mean, I think there's plenty of bombs to throw that direction, but I think, I think it's also about just saying like, let's learn from that and let's do better. Let's rise above that. Like, let's not repeat that history. Let's not, or let's not keep that history going. That's That's even still here. Um, What do you think about on this day? Like, obviously we're going to have a really long form conversation tonight, but what are your initial thoughts even as you've kind of, you know, we're already more than halfway through the day, it's five o'clock. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. What have you been uh, thinking on, praying on, meditating on today yeah. as you think about this holiday? And uh, just, I guess, what it means for us as followers of Jesus, like those who are trying to live in a Christ-like way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, it, back in the early 90s, uh, it was uh, cities like Berkeley, California, and Boulder, Colorado, these kind of progressive hubs in the United States that really started to um, officially sponsor an indigenous people's day that uh, they got, they, 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 they got rid of Columbus day mm-hmm. and said, you know, we're, we're going to take this opportunity to flip the script here in an appropriate way. Um, and, and really put the emphasis on the indigenous peoples that were, um, were, were and continue our, our victims of genocide and so I think that Columbus Day gives us an opportunity to to reflect on our own history, um, and not just the history of the United States, uh, but the history of Christianity. And yeah. um, and, and the great news is that um, Christianity is plural. It's actually Christianities. Like there mm-hmm. are several perspectives on who Jesus was, uh, and what that means for us. And so for us to be reminded of um, these kind of colonial Christianities that have had the power and have had the popularity uh, and have kind of moved the world for centuries mm. ought not have the last word. And, yeah. uh, and for me, that's, that's, that's what I'm passionate about. Uh, we, we do not have to um, leave the faith um, in this journey, in this spiritual journey that we have. Some people do, and I understand it. I get it. Um, they, they, they've grown up in, in Columbus Christianity and fundamentalism, and, and there's just it, there's so much trauma that comes with it that, that I understand that. Um, however, there is a minority report uh, throughout history um, that, uh, that is really compelling. That, that, that takes Jesus at face value and takes Jesus in context as a prophetic voice mm-hmm. that, that calls us to, to real greatness, right? Yeah. Um, 
and it's the Columbus Christianity that's hijacked what greatness means and, um, and, and, and is, is now the political motto, right? Let's make America great again. But when Jesus talked about greatness, he, he talked about service. Um, yeah. he, ta- he talked about sacrifice. He talked about uh, loving people so mm-hmm. much that you're willing to lay down your life for them. And, yeah. um, and that means loving everyone, not just, um, not just your family, not just uh, the people who think like you, uh, and certainly not the people that, uh, that look like you or love like you. Mm. And, um, and, and, and that's, to me, what, what, what this day, the kind of opportunity that this day gives us yeah. to, to push back and to subvert together. Um, uh, and as you say, like at the beginning yeah. of this podcast, I am con- there, there are millions of us all over North America that are, that are second-guessing Columbus Christianity. Sure. And, uh, and, 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 and yearning for something different. I think even, I mean, I, and, and I, I mean, obviously we're picking on Christopher Columbus, but it is his day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's fair to do so. But I think any Christianity that's done from a position of power. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like when you look back through church history that the church looks very Christ-like when it's in power. I just, I don't, I mean, I look at the, I I look at all the different like seasons of church history and it just seems like when the church is in power or seeking to be in power, that's even the worst, I think, sometimes. Um, There's some sketchy things that are done in the name of Jesus and Jesus begins to get skewed into whatever category or whatever explanation the Bible gets skewed into whatever explanation yeah. can get that power. I even just watched a Netflix series. I forget the name, but it's the one about the prayer breakfast. Have you heard of this? The family. The family. Oh, dude, that was creepy. I watched that. I was like, yeah. what in the world? You should totally go watch the family if you haven't seen it. But it's pretty much all about yeah. power, but then even like shadow power, like trying to be have yeah. political power and control, but... Yeah. to stay in the shadows while having it and yeah. creating this national prayer breakfast, which, you know, as someone who did grow up in very Republican circles, like similar to your experience, like I went to Liberty University. I don't know mm-hmm. that there's a more Republican mm-hmm. experience at a college than that. But, um, but mm-hmm. like, I always thought of the national prayer breakfast as like, oh, a bipartisan, like faith gathering. And like, now you see it as like, well, yeah, but like, yeah, there are people on both sides, but this is all about amassing yeah. political influence and sure. power yeah. and in the name of Jesus or yeah. in the name of the Bible or in the name of God. And like, and, and just like it, I don't know. It's so hard to think that Jesus would not be calling that out if he was here today in right. a way that like would just really frustrate a lot of people that yeah. are in those positions or that are benefiting from that system of power. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that it gave me chills watching it. My wife walked in on like episode three. I was watching. She hadn't watched like the first few episodes. She's like, what are you watching? <laughs> like, she like caught it's you. creepy, right? She like, this you. is creepy. Like, yeah, no, I'll just like more. She like, she was like, she, she jumped in like halfway through an episode and was like, this is weird. What is this? And I had to like pause it and explain to her like what was going on. But yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. And, and, and going to Liberty gave me, I mean, Jerry Falwell and 
and, and hearing even some of his quotes about like the desire to create the moral majority mm. that would mm. that would put Reagan in office that would uh, in essence like mm. create this frenzy of of like god patriotism like god and patriotism connecting in this fresh new way i guess and like i really what 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 helped me through my deconstruction was a lot of the anabaptist tradition Hmm. because the anabaptist traditions for me like i began to see a group that was is centered on jesus does that make sense like there's a jesus centric reality and a desire to stay disconnected from the systems and powers and structures of the world. Now, some people take that really, really, really far. And like the Amish would be part of the Anabaptist community, you know, and by the way, if you don't know what Anabaptist means, it just means baptize again during the reformation. They wanted Hmm. to be baptized again, in essence, not acknowledging their infant baptism, not acknowledging the Catholic church in that way. And so, Anyway, you can you can Google it, but <laughs> but um but what I love what I loved what I loved about it was like you have these radical Anabaptists at the time of like Vietnam who are burning their draft cards and yeah. doing it in the name of Jesus, yeah. and like this I, and I'm like I was never taught this <laughs> this wasn't something that like Liberty taught me in the, in the um in the church but they they were like Jesus says we can't like kill people. We have to love our enemies. We can't love our enemies by going and killing them. Like that's, that's antithetical to our faith. Like, and that to me, that is rising above Christopher Columbus Christianity, like saying, I'm willing to take the penalty for burning my draft card, which is going to be that I'm, I'm, I know the consequences for what I'm doing here. I'm going to get arrested. And and I know that's, that's part of the reality of the circumstance, but I'm not, I can't violate my conscience in this way because I feel called to something higher. And I just sense that like so often as Christians, we just kind of go with the flow. It's hard to evaluate sometimes because you get caught in that almost just like trance of like going through the motions until you get exposed to the people that that, if you get the opportunity to, the people that that ultimately hurts or the realities of those beliefs and how it's even hurting you. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. So, so when did you, when were you confronted with radical Anabaptism? Is that when you were reading uh, Shane Claiborne? So Shane Claiborne, I read Shane Claiborne in college and that would have, that would have been like irresistible revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I really put the Anabaptists together in there. I just think I put like, wow, this guy's really Jesus centered in everything. And, and, and that wasn't on the required reading list at Red Liberty. <laughs> no, I don't know how I, I got mean, that, actually. I mean, I'm trying to think back, like, how did I get that? That's scandalous. I, I know, seriously. I probably could have gotten yeah, If Jerry I, Jr. knew. <laughs> to be fair to Liberty, Shane Claiborne's been to Liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I, I, I don't... He wasn't there during my time, but um, he was later. But anyway, um, I, I don't know how I got that book. I think, I think honestly, the and this is just relevant magazine was something I, I, yeah. I read and the podcast yeah. was something yeah. I listened to. They were one of the first like Christian podcasts, like, and, and mm. they would share things that 
like Shane Claiborne's book or things like yeah. that or, or an interview with him or something. And, <laughs> and I think I, I just was like, I'm interested in hearing more from this guy. And, and, I, and I did that. I don't think that really connected the dots for me, though, to anabaptism necessarily, because I didn't really know what it was. We, we didn't talk at all about the anabaptists in church history, oh, yeah. like, which is so fascinating, like looking back at it now and seeing like the influence they've had, especially even, even in just Western Christianity. Like they, they are a legitimate, like, subset of Christianity within like we learned about all kinds of other legitimate you know subsets but just we didn't I don't think Liberty had a whole lot to focus on about the peacemakers the nonviolent you know what I mean sectarians Uh, yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) I don't know that they thought too kindly so um so after I after I got out of Liberty so I went to Liberty from 2002 to 2006 and then I went to Omega Church as the high school youth pastor Mm -hmm. at Omega Church Mm -hmm was there for a year and a half in, in Virginia or in, in Northern Virginia. So like yeah. DC area, like yeah. uh, highly affluent Loudoun County, which is like at the year I was there was the richest uh, average mean income County. You yeah. just got so many people working in DC, a lobbyist yeah. slash just CEOs, all kinds of people. So hmm. um, government contractors, you know, all those people. So um, ran a youth group there. Youth group did really well. Loved the kids. Went well, but it became uh, the church was well. In, in my experience at the time, the church was very corporate, all oh. about numbers. Mm-hmm. So I got put on probation as a youth pastor until I grew the youth group to a certain size. Literally, my probation said you have ninety days to grow the youth group to this size, or you're fired. Wow. Um, it wasn't even theological. It was just no, numbers. No theology. No theology. No theology. No, no. And no. <laughs> Which has a theology can, in it. Can but. I say also, no, like practical. The only practical thing was we'll give you all the resources you need. Hmm. The, my boss literally told me you could give away an iPad or an iPod every week. Wow. And I said, but if I do that, the kids that I have here that are here are going to be out. Like, you know, it was, it was a very interesting, like, wow. situation, I guess, that I was in. Um, uh, cause I, I, we were actually making a lot of traction, reaching a lot of kids, new kids and like, but in that culture, you're not going to reach people giving away an iPod. They have everything. They're rich. Got them. Uh, you reach people by like showing up to their basketball games when their dad doesn't cause he's working 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. You reach people when you like build relationships and we were doing that, but that's not yeah. overnight work. You know yeah. what I mean? That takes time and it takes building up a volunteer base of leaders that can buy, buy into that vision too, yeah. that are also busy, that are also trying to run the rat race, you know? Yeah. So like I was in that process and, wow. and ultimately, uh, it just led to me saying, uh, I started that probationary period. I was a week into it and I was just like, even if I get to these numbers, it's just going to be another number after this. It's just going to be another number after that. And ultimately the values are just not where they needed to, where, yeah. where they were when I got here. Um, and so, uh, and part of that was there was a big staffing change while I was there. And so new values came in I understood that it is what it is. So I went to Boston and did some work, um, community organizing, really kind of renewing my heart for ministry. Cause at that point I kind of, to be honest, like had my finger to the church walking out in that time. Like I was just like very angry cause I was angry because I'm like, I spent all this time going to school to become a youth pastor for this. No, 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 no. I, I could go make money. Like I, I'm not trying to be like cocky, but I'm just more like, I, I feel confident that I could go work hard for a company and make a lot of money and like 
crunch numbers all day and like get numbers. Like if we're going to do the numbers game. Then I want to go do it and make money doing it. Like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to, well, and it's not, well, it was more like just so superficial that it was like, if I'm going to do something superficial with my life, yeah. then I'll go do something superficial with my life. But like, that's not why I got into ministry to do superficial stuff. Does that, I don't know if that makes sense. It was just this like click in my head and like, Mm -hmm. and I kind of was seeing a lot of ministry through that lens. And I was just like connecting with friends who were having similar experiences in their churches, even if they were smaller. And so like, I just started kind of getting to the point where I was like, maybe every church experience is going to be like this. And, um, so what grabbed you in Boston? Well, I had an opportunity there and, uh, went to place called Dorchester and uh, it's in South Boston. I thought you were um, going to say Fenway Park, but I, that's well, another I story. That's Park another story. Too. I was in oh. Fenway Park a lot too. I'm a huge <laughs> Red Sox fan, but uh, no, we, we uh, and so um, my job, we would have youth groups come in every week through the summer and uh, other times they'd come through too. And mm-hmm. uh, my job was to um, every day prepare all the supplies they needed for whatever work site they were at. So I would get out like weed eaters, mm. lawn mowers. But my job also was to connect with each of those work sites. Mm. And those work sites were people in the community. And by people in the community, I mean like the widow who couldn't mow her lawn. And I would have to go connect with her. And so I would be like, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to go mow Widow Mary's lawn. But then you're going to go inside because it's only going to take you about 30 minutes to mow her lawn. You're going to sit for an hour. And she's going to make you tea. And you guys are going to talk about her husband. Mm. She's going to ask all kinds of questions about you, but make sure you get it, get her to talk about her husband. Mm. Like, wow. and so like I was building relational connections and like with tons of people in the community, people, were, people going through chemo who couldn't take care of what they needed to take care of people who had, um, mm. uh, violations for their property that they had to fix or they were going to get evicted. And so we would come in and like try to fix the things in their property that we could. And like, we'd have wow. youth work teams work alongside construction people to try to get it cheaper, like it was just all kinds of things. But I was connecting with like on the ground, real stuff. And I was like, my heart was renewing for ministry, quite honestly. Like I think mm. God knew I needed that experience mm. at the same time. I'm having that experience. I'm living in a Salvation Army communal housing with, I think we had like, what, 15 plus people there. Uh, A lot of Gordon Conwell theology students, seminary students. Um, And we'd have to get up every morning. Sounds like the family. Were you you sponsoring (laughs) prayer breakfast? No, I I don't think we were the family. Uh, I mean, it was fun. (laughs) Different kind of family. Yeah, it it was a different kind of family. But like we would have dinners together. You'd have to cook once a week. Um, dinner for the whole family or like once every other week. I don't know. It's something like that. And then, um, and we'd have every morning we'd have devotions together and the devotions were centered around whoever had to be to work earliest. And we'd set the clock the night before and you just have to, everybody had to get up and a lot of people go right back to bed, but it would be like sometimes like 5 a.m., 4.30 a.m., but like devotions every morning. Um, And devotions were really just like more like centering prayers for the day. I'm like, and I'm just like experiencing this as like a new this is interesting. This isn't the way I've even ever done devotions before. So a lot was being just challenged in that space that I didn't recognize. And then probably the, uh, one of the biggest things that was being challenged was I began cause I was close enough to high school. Okay. Cause at this point I'm two years graduated, three years graduated from college. You know, I, I still remember high school enough to know like oh. friends were in high school and like, and, and like, doing, taking my SAT and doing all that. And I'm seeing kids 
in Dorchester who have better SAT scores than me struggling to get into college. Hmm. And I was kind of shared this idea that like, hey, if you're African-American and you want to go to college, oh man, the world's open for you because you're a minority. And like, I'm realizing none of that is not true. Like, I'm sure there's all kinds of options, like sure, but there's a lot of ceilings that these minority communities are hitting that I never even, I I just breezed right through. And not just around education, but all kinds of things that I'm recognizing, like, I'm more likely to get like, or, or I'm more likely to like be breezing through the convenience store with my book bag where this guy gets stopped. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Or like, uh, just things that I had never had to actually experience before, huh. um, because of my white privilege, to be honest, um, huh. that like living in a predominantly, um, it was predominantly a Dominican community. Like I, I began to see like the realities of, of being a person of color. Um, and not that I am even fully aware of those realities today. Just, I, I began to see that the stereotypes that I'd been handed growing up didn't fit reality in this community. Um, and, uh, and that started me on a journey to, to, to begin listening to voices that were, um, very different than, than my own. And to, to begin to like consider that maybe some of what I've been handed didn't come from firsthand experience. Um, and yeah, so that, and then, then ultimately I went from there to Wisconsin, uh, to a great church. Um, that was exactly what I needed. It was a family, just a, a great community that, um, our, the ministry flourished there. It was highly relational. Hmm. And, um, yeah. and ultimately it like, uh, I got, elevated to interim lead pastor from, from the youth pastor position. Um, but it didn't work out for me to get ordained within that denomination. And, and, um, and that was hard, but, but ultimately I, I have a deep love for that community. I love the people there. It was, it was a great, great time. So many great relationships with students, like seven years of ministry mm-hmm. with students for me, like was like, I saw many students through middle school and high school and like, or, or through their four years of high school. And like, those are relationships that even still today, like on Facebook, I'll get a message from a student here or there and like, we'll chat and like, it's just good to connect with many students in that way. And I'm sure you have some of those as a, as being a teacher, people that you still connect with. And like, it's a good feeling to be like, okay, like I'm still connected to this part back here. This work that I did way back here is some of those, some of those seeds are still sprouting and I get to have, I was literally texting with a, a student today who, a former student who hasn't been in church for like maybe two years, I don't know, a long time, a while, and went to church and he's like, so the church I went to, and it was this like mega church, and he's like, he's like, the church I went to handed me a bulletin and inside of it was their merch brochure for all of nice. their church's merch. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so how did that make you feel? I'm like, so we're like talking about it, but it's like, but I'm able to have like, yeah. I'm able to continue to be a spiritual influence in a lot of those kids' lives, which is like yeah. huge. Now they're young adults, married many, some with kids. Like, so it's, it's cool to, yeah. to, to connect with them. And, and now I'm here in PA doing work in central Pennsylvania. And so it's, it's been uh, quite the roller coaster ride. But yeah, but my initial thing to Anabaptism, to get back to your question, because I just gave you my whole lineage there. But um, yeah, background. But while I was in, Wisconsin, I was finishing up my seminary and I took a course on, um, textual criticisms, Hmm. 
which is supposed to shore up my faith in the Bible, and it did the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. I began to be like, no, your explanation for that is not good enough. Like, your explanation for that is not good enough. Like, um, Nice try. Yeah. Well, like, the the cognitive dissonance I had already become, like, aware of, like, the, the realities of, like, okay, that's not consistent, Justin. That thought right there alongside that belief is not, they're not, they, they can't be in the same place. They can't operate. And especially they can't operate in the same ministry because I was starting to really put flesh on a lot of my beliefs mm. and like the effect it had on people. Yeah. And, um, and words like inerrancy, infallibility, words that, by the way, the Bible doesn't even use to describe itself as, yeah. like became very difficult terms for me to use. And I had a very, a, a house of cards moment where I always say I was, I preached the Bible for about three, four weeks on Sunday mornings to our, the whole church when I didn't even know if I believed the Bible. Like, mm. period, like I was like, did I just get handed a bunch of fairy tales? And like, I was told it was inerrant and infallible. Like that, that was my mindset for about three, four weeks. Oh. And I always say like kind of anabaptism in a, in a lot of ways brought me back. Greg Boyd, Bruxy Cavey, um, Greg Boyd, especially like, he, he did a lot of work on, like, I, I listened to a lot of his talks on, on the Bible, like the Bible is generally reliable is what he said. And I said, okay, I can, I can get with that, generally reliable and, like, and, and, and inspirational for our lives. And I'm just sitting here like, okay, I don't disagree with those two statements. And, like, and, he's, and then just, like, the idea of, like, isn't that enough? Like, and I was like, oh, I mean, not in my circles that I, that I run in, like, you know what I mean? And it's got to be, and, uh, gotta be way more. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be exactly, you know, and I think... I think saying the Bible's inspired is, is I, I can get behind that. I can even get behind like hmm. God inspired it. Like I, I can get behind a lot of, the problem is the moment you begin to like make it this thing it isn't. Like yeah. I, I begin to kind of, the thing I keep telling people too is like, I don't want to read the Bible literally. I want to read it literally. Like this is literature that was written to a particular people group at a particular time with a particular agenda. Right. Like, some of these books have agendas. They're trying to convince people of something. Um, you can't remove that, quote one verse, and then tell me that like, I better change X, Y, or Z because that one verse, when you've taken it completely out of context, completely right. out of uh, the group that it's being written to, the author that's writing it, the, the time and place in which the politics of what's happening, the the geography of what's happened, all of these things play huge roles in understanding the text. And so the more I began to kind of dive down that wormhole, the more I realized like, wow, um, I actually think the Bible is more alive than it's ever been in my life because I'm not reading it as a systematic mathematical equation that I need to solve, but I'm reading it as like this like piece of history that, uh, and stories of interactions with people that has all this life and all this um, profound implications on like how I live my life, like in ways that like I didn't expect. I I began to see, I mean the probably the most powerful story during that whole time was the, the woman at the well, Hmm. like the Samaritan woman Hmm. at the well. Like we just don't talk a lot about how radical it was for Jesus to sit with a Samaritan woman at a well, like in his context, one doesn't on one. get more radical than that. And then yeah. one-on-one and then to ask her for a drink of water, yeah. which is a pickup line around a well in those days. Like, and not that Jesus was 
giving a pickup line, but he was actually hmm. placing dignity upon her hmm. to where like no one would ever ask her questions like that. To, to, and then to be even willing to drink after her, like, yeah. and, and this is the first person he says he's the Messiah to a woman, yeah. a Samaritan woman hmm. who's likely probably a prostitute from what we gather, or at least she's been in a lot of relationships. She, she doesn't have a great track record when it comes to like yeah. being faithful. And Jesus is like, this is the first person that's going to know that I'm the Messiah. The disciples are just following a cool new rabbi like that. Yeah. I mean, they're a cool new teacher. Like they don't know he's the Messiah. None of them have said that, but like, she's like, yeah, when that guy comes, we'll know. Well, I'm, I'm that one. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> It's and a it perfect just, person to come out to exactly, as Messiah. Right? Yeah. Like, I, well, and that's exactly where I was like, so Jesus starts his ministry at the margins, and then Jesus dies at the end of his ministry being, being accused of being one of those people at the margins. Huh. Yet we want to be in power, but we want to say we're being like Jesus while we're in power. That's... Yeah. It, the yeah. kingdom is upside down. The kingdom is not, not that, not, not, not the idea of being in power. And so, I don't know. So, like, yeah, my journey is, I, it seems like we have pretty similar journeys. Because you were at Saddleback for a while there, like, at, at a mega church experience, which I'm sure, I'd love to hear a little bit about that experience. Not, not to, and I want to be clear, like, I, I don't want to, like, trash churches or, like, you know. But I, I just more mean, like, when you, be, when you wake up to something or you see something, it's like, it's hard not to see it after you see it. It's hard not to be like, that's what I, I actually signed that, that, um, the probationary period thing. And I was like, okay, for 90 days, I'll do this. Cause I was just like, but then like a, a week later, I was like, I've already seen this. This is how we operate. Mm-hmm. I can't unsee this. Like, even if we accomplish mm-hmm. the number we're trying to reach, yeah. I can't do ministry with joy now that I've seen this. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to change this. I'd love to be an agent of change maybe in this place, but yeah. at that time I didn't have the influence to do that. Oh, and, and, and yeah, that was my position. So I'd love to hear like your experience through some of those transitions because they are like all their own yeah. little like, I don't know, mile markers of sorts. Like when you, when you hit one, it's like, ooh, this kind of hurts, but it's also kind of feels like something I should acknowledge as movement in my story and yeah. maybe now the landscape looks different and the car has to change that's going to get me to the next oh, yeah. mile marker i don't know yeah yeah and and it's uh, it's it's what um jameson and i were talking about a little bit this morning yeah i i will always be grateful and continually grateful today for the kind of passion and warmth um that that is embedded in the evangelical movement mm. um there there is something to the evangelical culture um, that I continually long for mm. and, and, and yearn for in those spaces. And, um, and, and that's, you know, I, I think I'm still looking for that um, outside of evangelicalism. And it's, it's why I talk about um, yearning for a Christian faith that transcends fundamentalism and liberalism. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is something, there is a third way, you know, yeah. there, there is... There's something radical that, that decolonizes um, out there that, um, that's untapped. Like I think a lot of us are just are kind of spiritually homeless because um, we're not going to walk into an evangelical church 
It's um, in, in the words of Mark Knoll, who's a, you know, evangelical church historian, um, the, the first line of his like classic book is um, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no life of the mind. Mm. It's, it's wow. anti-intellectual. It, it, you have to check your brain at the door um, and there is no conversation. There's a whole bunch of fear over anything that goes outside those boundaries. And, um, but it's, it's like on the left in, in a lot of mainline churches and, uh, and a lot of Catholic churches that I, it, it's just a different culture that is like, it's foreign to me. Yeah. And so, so there is still this kind of evangelical impulse um, that I still long for. Yeah, know? there's definitely a warmth in a community that, I, and I think in, in my communities, like that I grew up in that were evangelical, like a, a true family vibe to, to, yeah. to, to a certain extent. I don't think it was family to the extent of like really carrying each other's burdens, but like enough to feel like you could be honest if you chose to be with people, at least in like yeah. that were close to you. And like, yeah. I think that's good about the community. The other thing is like, I think the problem with some of of what I see in, oh, I'll just share from our experience uh, as a church. We get a lot of people who come from from more liberal churches. I guess you could call them liberal, whatever you want to call them. Like, they're like, we don't talk about Jesus at all. Yeah, and and I, and I want a church that talks about yeah. Jesus, but I don't want to go to an evangelical church. <laughs> it's like, yeah, churches should probably talk about Jesus. Like, and and look, I don't want to be critical yeah. of churches that I don't know what what their experiences or what their what their what they're reaching out to and, and, um, and, and how they're structured. But yeah. if that's something you're looking for, yeah. a Jesus centered church, that's not an evangelical church, but that maybe still has the warmth of like a community that I can connect yeah. with. And, you know, um, yeah. geez, there's just not many out there yeah. that I've seen at least yeah. a- around, around here. And it's, yeah. it's tough. Yeah. And the, and the kind of vulnerability and authenticity, evangelicalism at its best that, that offered yeah. that kind of personal transformation that I, that I don't find on the left. I don't find yeah. in mainline denominations very often. Um, and, and, you know, like the classic example is, is like growing up in white evangelicalism and being a part of the youth group and like being a part of the guys group in high school and, you know, mm-hmm. keeping each other accountable for masturbation. It's like you got a bunch of guys like sharing about masturbation and, uh, you know, (laughs) I mean, that's, that's, uh, this is open. We're, we're going to, we're going to be real, Uh, but it's like, let's, okay, so let's go beyond that and let's talk about whiteness. Let's talk about patriarchy. Let's talk about homophobia. Yeah. Um, and let's, let's be confessional about this. Like this is deep in us. Yeah. We can share these things. Um, and we, we, we have this, um, this 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 biblical text that uh, screams grace and mercy and forgiveness and uh, and a God who loves us no matter what, um, so we can be bold, definitely, and, and we 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 can come out of hiding, and um, and share these these things, and and we can be um, be people that are uh, anti-oppression, you know. Um, yeah. But it, but that's that's not what's happening in a lot of spaces on the left where, where people feel pressure that they have to have all their shit together and, yeah. and, and like, and be pure politically. Like yeah. you got to say all the right things at all the right times and, well, or else you're banished. And I'll say this. One of the things I'm learning about is like cancel culture. 
Yeah. Like, have you heard about this cancel culture? No. Like, the idea that, like, the moment someone says something wrong, Call we them cancel out. them. Yeah. Like, they're done. Like, yep. and you're even kind of seeing this, like, right now with um, Ellen. So she sits next to George W. Bush right. in, in a suite, and they're seen smiling and laughing while she's, like, showing him something funny on the phone. Huh. And look, I think there's a way to acknowledge the evils an individual's done. And, and whether or not you believe that that's who George W. Bush is, what he's done, what I mean... I guess what I'm trying to say is like, so now you're going to cancel culture Ellen for that? Like for that. And like her response was so good, but like it doesn't, Mm -hmm. if you become, I guess if you become so woke, I say it sometimes like Allie and I, sometimes we're in staff meetings and I'd be like, some of these people are so woke. They just need to go take a nap. Like, like they're just there's just like this picture of like they, they need I'm a power so nap. woke yeah. I'm so woke that I get to pass judgment yeah. when people don't act as woke as I am. Yeah. And I'm like, but that is a form of fundamentalism in That's itself. Right. That's right. Like yeah. you're now just picking up a different form of fundamentalism. Ton of fear. And you're being and it's all based on fear. Yeah. Exactly. It's all based on well, what happens if we let that person get away with that thing? Yeah. And again, I, I want to be clear, like I am coming from a position of privilege. So like whenever yeah. I argue for kindness or forgiveness, I want to also acknowledge that like those can be used as weapons against people too. That's right. Like in a way yeah. of against project, uh, progress. Like, so I, I don't want to say that, that, um, that there's maybe not a time where uh, canceling somebody or just shutting them off or just saying, or, or boycotting. Boycotting was very popular within the civil rights movement. So I'm not going to say boycotting isn't something that's, right. that, that can be helpful and healthy, yeah. but... I think we do it so quickly now because of yeah. social media. We do it so flippantly yeah. and it becomes like a crucifixion of somebody, a scapegoating, like right. a, a lynch mob even, like of like, we're just gonna take this person out to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Right. It, it's way more, in my opinion, connected to pride and ego than actually a desire for progress and justice and change. Yeah. And that's hard sometimes because I sometimes agree with the community, like their, what, their, what their desire is. Right. But the way we're doing it, it's not going to reconcile anything. It's yeah. going to push people further yeah. into their spaces. And like, yeah. 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 And, and it's why we so desperately need church spaces so we can build trust, we yeah. can have good faith, we can have real conversations, we can um, confess, and we can forgive each other. And we can step in it and still be there with each other the next day. And I think we just lack those spaces. And and even you you point out um, brilliantly um, the civil rights movement, like the civil rights movement boycotted, but that was a step along the journey. Like like they were committed to having relationships Mm -hmm. with business owners who were denying black folks service first. And they had conversations and they walked alongside and they wanted, and, and there was negotiation that was part of it. And then when all of those steps, um, d- did not come to fruition, yeah. they boycotted. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, so, so, the, so, so we, that's our first, that's our first step now. Yeah. You know, it's and like, it's boycott through a tweet, deplatform somebody, yeah. remove their, whatever their monetization is, whatever their right. platform is and, and threaten their career. And I guess my thing on that is like, so what happens in the aftermath of that? 
in the aftermath mm-hmm. of that, the people affected by that, the individual or the other people, are less likely to learn the lesson, I would say. Like, and not that it's your job to teach them a lesson, but I guess I'm saying, like, yeah. it's less likely that you actually see progress and change when that's... Yeah. It's not a safe space. It's not... It, and look, everywhere can't be a safe space, and I understand that. Like, that's, that's yeah. the world we live in. I don't think you and I could spend the rest of our lives and, and, and a multitude of others trying to make social media a safe space. Uh, that ship has sailed, in my opinion. The genie's out of the bottle. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. But churches yeah. can, and, and by safe, I mean radical, yeah. but radical in the way in which we extend grace. And even at times when we sit across the aisle from someone in our church that's yeah. part of our same community and we say, it is so hard to love you right now with the beliefs you have. Yeah. But at the very least, I'll cling to the fact that Jesus calls me to love my enemies and the beliefs you have right yeah. now are the beliefs that I would even say like embody what I just can't, yeah. can't even bring myself to consider. Yeah. But my calling is to love you. Oh. And I'm going to keep extending that love for you. And another big story for me, Saul to Paul. Like Saul, Saul's transformation to me hmm. is so amazing because we always focus on the power of Jesus in that story in the sense of like Jesus blinds Saul on the road. Like, hmm. But like we don't pause and talk about Ananias in the story, hmm. who's the one who comes and 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 heals Saul and, and prays for him. Mm. And the first thing he says when he walks in the door, and he's even like had this conversation like of like, but you do know like Saul's coming to kill us. Like, are you sure we want to work with this guy? Yeah. Like, like maybe we got our, Hold you on. know, phone line cro- crossed here. I don't know that this guy is the guy we want to, but once, once he's convinced that like, this is part of like, God can redeem even Saul, oh. even the, the one who was at the stoning of Stephen. And like, breaking out of persecution in the church that's forced us into mm. Samaria of all places as Jewish people. Does that make sense? Yeah. He goes in and the first thing he says is brother Saul. Mm. And like, that's important. Like yeah. Saul hasn't shown any repentance yet. Yeah. Saul, Saul doesn't, he doesn't know that Saul's actually like not going to kill him and his friends and his family. Like, yeah. but there's this picture of like, Unity and connectedness that I feel like the early church was more open to radical love of enemies um, that I think is transformative in all of the cancel culture stuff because I think we prefer to cancel our enemies. Yeah. Not different, circling all the way back to Columbus Day, not different from, from that colonialist mindset of like yeah. um, we conquer our enemies. Now we might just conquer them on a different platform, social media or you know, yeah. canceling them however the church could be a huge light in the 21st century of like, here's how we do community when we disagree. Yeah. And not that we just like this utopia that we're like not going to have difficult conversations. We're all just going to believe the same thing, but like right. how can we hold various beliefs while championing? And, and I think you have to have, you have to have a rally point. That's, I think the big deal. Yeah. If you're going to organize your communities around boundaries, then you're just going to be the next fundamentalist church. Right. Like it might be fundamentally liberal or it might be fundamentally conservative or fundamentally whatever. But if you can instead say like, there's a well we all get a drink out of and here's what it looks like. Yeah. And let's organize our life around that well. Mm. And everyone's invited. I don't care where you're at. 
I wonder yeah. how far away from the well you are, how close. It's all about moving closer to the well. Yeah. So what can I do to get you closer to the well? I don't yeah. care where you're at right now. How, take a few steps toward the well. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, that to me is, yeah. is the image that I think of the church being and hopefully being like just reconciling a lot of the hurt we've caused in, in my lifetime, at least. Yeah. If yeah. we could be that kind of space. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's it's all as you're as you're sharing. I'm, um, what's coming up for me is is that I think it's why um, white male caucus space is really important in the church because I think it's the white men that are afflicting a lot of the trauma on those most vulnerable, on women, on queer and questioning folks, on people of color, and so I think we need to have these spaces where it's just all white men working our shit out and, and with, e- with each other, you know? Um, 100%. So, so we're not inflicting all of this stuff on everybody else. Um, so. Leadership in churches, as far as elders go, is predominantly white men. Yeah. Yeah. And then also in denominations is predominantly white men. Yeah. And it's like... I'm beside myself because I've had my own experiences with that. And like, it's hard for me because I'm a, I'm a straight white man. Right. And I don't want to like deplatform people because of their race or because of their, you know, um, sexual orientation, you know, or because of their age, like none of that, like, but when you have so much of one particular demographic represented in places of power that, have legitimate and binding influence. Right. And you can't see that, even when people have, have or you just explain it, like, well, who else would be here? Like, we'll find people. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. it's, yeah. It, it shows that the problems we have are problems of a system and a structure more so than problems of just like chance moments where people miss the mark. Right. Like these will continue to be repeated Deeply if we embedded. don't, yeah, if we don't shift and change and move and like, yeah. um, and it's not new. We've, we've, we've had these, these issues throughout church history. Like, yeah. um, but I think it's becoming more and more, our culture is becoming more and more open to, to progress, I think, at least the younger generation in my experiences. Like, I don't know what yeah. your experience has been, but like okay. a lot of people we're reaching that are in that millennial slash generation Z demographic think it's crazy that a church or a denomination would remove a pastor's credentials because Amen. they were affirming. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. they, they can't understand it. Like, and they're and, and there are the also people who believe in Jesus. Like, I, I, they're not just, right. you know. And so, so I guess I, I, I don't think that's crazy because I grew up in a different generation. I mean, I'm, I'm at the top end of millennial, 35. I don't think that's crazy because I've, I've lived in that world so long mm-hmm. that to me it's like I get 
you, this is what you do to people who go outside the boundaries. Right. This is what you're trained to do. Yeah. You ghost them. Like you said yesterday in, yeah. the, in the Sunday service, like if you don't outright tell them to their face, they're a sinner and they're going to hell, like, or, you know, try to tell them they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. If you don't go right out and say it, then at the very least you ghost them. You don't associate with them anymore. You move on to the next thing. You, you, you forget Silence. them. Like they're out they're, you know? Yeah. Um, and if, so like, I, I know that culture. It's shocking to me to see how many young people are like, what? I'm appalled by that. How does that work? Like, yeah. and especially even people who are outside of the church, they're even more shocked by it. Wow. That's how that works. Um, no categories for that kind of oppression. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. They, they really, they really don't outside of politics. I think, yeah. I think outside of politics, they don't have uh, a system or structure that they can necessarily yeah. connect with. Now, some people have had like, they get it from a standpoint of like, maybe they've had family issues of like divorce or things like that. They can understand like a fracturing in that way, right. but like they don't understand it being connected to Jesus, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I'm like, I guess I shouldn't understand it. Like I, it shouldn't be familiar to me, but yeah, it kind of is like, I get it. Like, yeah. and, um, yeah. What's share with me a moment where you felt, I guess, uh, well, maybe share with me a little bit of your catalyst for, for leaving ministry, the, the ministry you were in. You were, you were what, an associate pastor um, yeah. at a church plant, kind of campus type, type situation? Yeah. What so was, was some it, of the catalysts for, for you transitioning out of that? Was it a particular issue like LGBT or like mm-hmm. um, racial reconciliation or yeah. just a, like an amalgamation of a bunch of different things kind of coming together? Yeah. So, so back in 2004, 2005, I was at, uh, an associate pastor at a daughter church of Saddleback. Okay. So it was like, you know, kind of a pseudo emerging church with, um, candles and rock music and, you know, younger demographic, gotcha. um, really good guys. There's, there's four of us men on, you yeah. know, just starting this thing. And, um, and I just, I, st- like one of the things that was, I had a, a really good friend in Colorado who was going to um, uh, Iliff Seminary and he was feeding me John Howard Yoder, Politics of Jesus. He was feeding me Shane Claiborne mm. and Brian McLaren. And I, I was sitting on the beach on the weekend and reading, you know, commentaries on gospels and stuff. And I, I just um, was feeling the tension of these core convictions these core evangelical convictions. So basic convictions like um, the idea that um, if you don't invite Jesus into your heart, you're going to heaven or you're, you yeah. know, you're going to hell. Yeah. Um, like these are things that just like didn't make sense to me anymore. Like yeah. that's crazy. A- and it doesn't match up with the biblical witness. You mm-hmm. know, that the, there's a theology that just kind of bends and twists these passages to, 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 turn it into a justification by faith type of, uh, adventure. And, um, and, and then just like the Republican politics part of it, mm-hmm. uh, was huge, the inerrant Bible. Um, so I started to question all of those things first. Yeah. Um, and as I approached members on staff at the church and, and other folks, they're just, I couldn't find people that would give ear to that. Yeah. It was, it was just, it was too scary for them. To, to go down a journey like that. And I, and I wasn't in a place, 
at that point uh, with uh, around issues of sexuality, like that wasn't until 2007, 2008, being, being in seminary, starting to wrestle with the text and, and understand yeah. different ways of viewing the Bible yeah. that, um, that I can be in that space. So, um, but, but I, everything in me just wanted to pour all of my time and energy into studying the Bible. And that's, that's why we went to Fel- uh, Fuller Seminary and okay. I started teaching just Did part-time. you walk away from your position on, on staff then? Like yeah. just because yeah. were you realizing like these questions aren't questions I can have and be in this leadership position? That's right. Is that kind yeah. of the situation you find yourself in? Yeah. And I was always bivocational. So I, okay. I never got a paycheck from the church. Uh, I was always just doing it with as much time as I could I could put into it. Uh, and at that point in 2005, I just realized I'm still teaching, I'm still coaching, um, and I want to go to seminary. And I want to pour all my free time into just yeah. studying the text and studying theology. Yeah. And so I just didn't have any time to to be able to, like, be in this in-between space yeah. and, 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 st- and try to pastor folks and, and be in, in leadership. Um, and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made to, to give myself to that for three years Yeah, and just pour good. myself into it. Was Am I right that Rick Warren was also, did, did they do like a presidential debate there? Yeah. I feel like one year they did, right? Was that around the time you were there or maybe yeah. a couple so, years after? So 2008, yeah, right. Okay. Kind, of, kind of right after we left, but we still like knew a ton of people there. They, yeah. they called it the Civil Forum. You know, yeah. it, was, it was Obama and uh, McCain yeah. that year. What do you think about that? From yeah. a standpoint of like, do you think churches should have debates like that? I don't know what I think about that. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm not sure what I think about it either. Um, I, I think churches should be uh, deeply political because uh, Jesus was. And so I think, um, and our politics goes way beyond electoral politics. Yes, definitely. Um, but, but I think, I mean... If you I, sometimes I go back and read the transcript of that uh, of that presidential debate, and it's just it's eerie. It's um, you know, like Rick Warren is asking these questions, and one of the questions, of course, is about Christian faith. And um, McCain, I mean, you can look back on the tra- transcript. It's just like, is is he a Christian? Is he a disciple of Jesus? Mm. I don't know. He's kind of just checking the box. Like, you know, he, he, he's kind of in an Episcopal faith yeah. that's um, like, you can, you can see that it's like, this is not something that's part of him. Yeah. Obama is like, uh, he, he's, he's, he, Christian faith has deeply moved him. Like you, you can yeah. see in his response, but, but like at the end of the debate, you survey like evangelicals, McCain is clearly the Christian and, and it, and it all rises and falls on the abortion issue. Oh all yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, hundred percent. Yeah. And, and of course all the undergirding that goes, goes all the undergirding the between country. Republican and Democrat and between yeah. who's God's candidate and who's not oh, yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just, I just think it's interesting because I, I do believe. So, so politics, the root word of politics is just orga- how we organize community. Like that's just yeah. really what it is. How do we organize yeah. our communities? Like, and communities that organize, I mean, I think from anthropological studies, it seems like communities that organize beyond like 200 people be, become infinitely complex hmm. at that point because, yeah. because uh, <laughs> we don't agree well <laughs> once we get to a certain yeah. size. And, and you see that in churches. Mega yeah. churches, 
I'll tell you from my experience on being on a mega church staff, mm-hmm. I don't wish it on any of my friends that are pastors to mm-hmm. be at a mega church. Look, I'd love for you to have the influence, but I know what that looks like from, um, from on the back end. Like, oh. you know what I mean? Like that's not, yeah. it's not a pleasurable place to be when you get on that. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we see some of those pastors um, having either moral failings or even committing suicide I think the pressures in that position that are placed on you by yeah. so many people and that, are, that you place on yourself yep. are, are in a lot of ways unbearable. I, yeah. I, I don't think you're meant to, to, it's not to, a great way to make decisions and yeah, hold power. Exactly. And so I, I think when you think about politics being how we organize as a community, I think the church should be arguing for a different kind of politics, for a different kind of organization, for right. a different kind of way that we, yeah. The way that we, a way that we gather, a way that we, mm-hmm. a way that we um, connect with one another and also listen to one another and mm. um, listen to each other's experiences and, and, and develop a structure that's beneficial for the whole, right. that, that, that embodies the fruits of the spirit. Yeah. So to the extent that the church should be political, I think the church should be a light into the political system that shows like there's a different way to organize yeah. Even when we get to a point of millions and millions of people trying to organize around, uh, around all kinds of complicated issues, yeah. there's a way to do this. But I think the moment the church tries to say, so let me do that from a position of power right. over, I think the power is under. I yeah. think the power is when we come alongside right. under and we say, hey, there's this gift that exists under here. Like, yeah. it's, it's for everybody. Like, it's not... We're not like going to hold it over your head. Come, you can have it. Like, um, and look, that might be like very idealistic. And like, again, I'm coming from a position of privilege that can say that. And there's not a whole lot on the line for me if, if it doesn't work. Right. Whereas some people like literally their lives are on the line. Like, um, but I do think there's a different politic to be. And, and when I listen to Martin Luther King Jr. Talk about the church and talk about politics, it tends to be in that space that I'm like, I, I can get behind this. Like yeah. I can get behind um, mm-hmm. the Reverend in that way. Yeah. Like a lot of what he said about that intersection to me yeah. seemed to be at the very best, a better, better than what we're doing now. Maybe yeah. not perfect. I don't know that there is a perfect, but better. Yeah. I don't know. Oh yeah. You're a big fan of Martin Luther King Jr. too? Oh Yeah. Yeah. deeply moved me. There's a, there's a ton of my own journey with Martin Luther King in the book. Um, mm-hmm. but, for, but for me, it, I mean, King is, he's so accessible, his speeches. Um, it's so easy to just to, to read a letter from a Birmingham jail, to read beyond his Beyond Vietnam speech, which is, you know, perhaps the greatest speech ever. Got in a lot of trouble his own community. Oh, that, man. That speech did. I mean, just, just denounced by every that, newspaper in the United States and that was equivalent to him I, I, in studying his history and his biography that, that almost seems like equivalent to him in like 2012 being a white evangelical pastor coming out as supporting the LGBT community right. like on a platform That's right. like he got yep. everyone yeah. people who are like right by his side in marches are like I'm out yeah. like this yeah. is too much yeah. yeah why'd you do that yeah yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and clearly today, obviously on the right side of history, but, but, uh, but in that speech, just, just charting, um, radical revolution of values, a new way forward. 
for uh, for Christian people, but obviously for American people. And, mm-hmm. and in the last 50 years, obviously, um, a majority of folks and, and the way that power has moved has not moved in that way, um, yeah. has, has continuously supported profit instead of people and um, so on and so forth. So, I mean, yeah, King, King is... Um, the American prophet, um, uh, you know, in, in, in 1967, um, you know, even before he gave that speech, like if you look at uh, his poll ratings, you know, they had him even back then, um, it was like 25% of Americans, um, liked him 25%. And, uh, 15 years after he was assassinated, it was up to 80%. And, and the point I make in the book is is that um, that 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 people didn't change the way they thought about King; they changed King. They turned him into this kind of meek and mild yeah. black man with a with a little you know American dream that we can all get together and you know agree with one another. Um, but he was he had prophetic fire that uh, that was the reason people hated him, and that's why he was killed, just like Jesus. And so, so we can see these like strong parallels between King and Jesus. It's the same thing that's going on. These yeah. are prophetic voices that people hated because of how they talked and the truth that they spoke. And that's why they were killed. And then, and then people turned them into different people with Have different you read, messages. I think it's called The Radical King. I read that book. Um, yeah. I've read quite a few King um, books. That, it's like, that one at Cornell's, uh, that's one Cornell's Cornell. book, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it was so good because he just dismantled, yeah. in essence, the ways in which King has been just so muted. Deodorized, yeah. sanitized. And, and like, <laughs> and done, yeah, the Radical King, Corn, Cornell West, and then there's like all kinds of different, I, I, do, I do Audible, so I'm, I'm looking at it here. Um, all kinds of different people on it. And then um, Death of a King was by Tavis Smiley. That, yeah. was, a, that was a great that book. That was good, yeah. Um, but, like, I, I just, I go back to, like, it's amazing to me to see how committed King was to doing the right thing at, at, even when the time maybe wasn't right, like, or yeah. the time where people weren't ready or, like, I mean, no. that's... Mm-hmm. it's a hard thing to be in that position where you know, like, the consequences of saying yeah. that. And, like, and he was, he was championing nonviolence yeah. in a time where, like, that wasn't a conversation in the church, not that it even is now. I don't know about you. I always say I never really grew up. I can't remember any time in my church, all the way through college, hearing anyone in my church or in my um, theological influence, church influence, Jesus influence, arguing for nonviolence. Mm. Yeah. Never once. Yeah, I don't Every once in a while, we'd have a conversation about turning the other cheek and what that meant. Um, but it always usually came with the caveat of like, well, don't let people like beat you up. Like, mm-hmm. and like, and, and got to defend ourselves. Yeah. Got to defend ourselves. So like, it always came with this, like, but attached to it. Like all, all nonviolence always came with this, like yeah. severe, like we can't go that far. And I always think it's so interesting that like, Dr. King, Leo Tolstoy, Gandhi. Yeah. The biggest influences in my nonviolent, like even seeing Jesus as nonviolent, yeah. were those people. Yeah. Not, 
not the pastors I grew up with who mm-hmm. taught from the passages that said things that championed nonviolence, but then either worked their ways around it, didn't really emphasize it. Yeah. I, I just think like we've overlooked a very big portion of Jesus' teachings and King refused to overlook it. That's right. King refused to, to, to overlook that radical piece, even like some of the crazy things like getting his house bombed <laughs> and coming out on the front lawn to people like ready to go to war and yeah. like telling them to put, to, to put their guns away and to put their, to go home. And, yeah. and like, and you're just like, Oh man, if you bomb my house with my wife and kids in it, I don't know. Like I, I, I yeah. want to believe I'm a nonviolent person. I want to believe like Jesus has transformed me, that but, but like that I also down. am human. And like, you just see like his, his belief in that, like nonviolence, we can remake this world with love. Like uh-huh. we can remake a lot of the, right. the, the, the pain that we've experienced as a community. And I'm speaking him saying that as the black community has experienced that as slaves and as, and, and, and the systematic racism that existed of his time, we can move forward. But if we, if we respond with violence, we're, we're not reconciling. We're not, we're not forgiving. We're not doing well when we do that. And I, I just think the tension he lived in was a life and death tension. The church isn't even in that right now. And even without the life or death tension, like we just can't seem to like own that. Like Jesus is clearly nonviolent, like clear. There's no, for Jesus, like, and for the context of his day, take up your cross is like legit, like a crucifixion. Like, like this is what it means to follow me. I don't know. I mean, big words. Yeah. And I, and I just thoroughly agree with, um, the, the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel has this like classic quote where he says, um, the, 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 fu- the whole future of America depends on the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, oh, and, wow. and I think that that's absolutely spot on. It, it, it's, are we going to follow that path uh, or yeah. are we not? Uh, A lot of what, like when you go back and read King's speeches, sermons, mm-hmm or even just historians like quoting him and sharing information about him, yeah. you realize how much what he was talking about is one for one applicable to stuff we're going through today politically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not like you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Like it's the continuation of things that he was working through that exist now even. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have uh, this event about to start. We got to get some food. So yeah. do you want to tell anybody where they can find out more about you? Like if they want to follow you online, if they want to buy your book, obviously they can go to Amazon. But Yeah, um, check out the book. Um, check out uh, radicaldiscipleship.net. Uh, I'm a co-curator of that site, so I write quite a bit there. Okay, and, radicaldiscipleship.net. Yeah. Got it. More All right. More of that stuff. Yeah. Tom, thanks so much. Thanks for, thanks for letting me uh, talk a little bit. And yeah, it was share. good. Yeah. yeah, great to be with you. First episode of 2020 in the books. So excited you could join me for this episode of the podcast. Huge thanks 
for Tommy Airy being with me today on this episode and sharing his story and his passion. Please go read his book, Descending Like a Dove, Adventures in Decolonizing Evangelical Christianity. Such a great story. Get that book at Amazon. Definitely check it out. Also, I now have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. If you want to and are able to support the show financially, that would be amazing. I would feel so blessed by that. You can also support the show, though, by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing. Getting the word out really does mean a lot, and I'm always so thankful when others see this as something worthy of sharing with their friend network. So thank you for that. If you'd like to find uh, the show notes for this episode or others, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.